Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, both humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, bless this time in your word. We pray that you would show us uh, not only your grace and your forgiveness, God, but also where to repent, Lord, that we become more like your son. You would make us a holy people, God. We thank you that you don't just save us from our past sins, but you save us from all sins, and you also are sanctifying us, God. So we ask that you would sanctify us further this day through the work of your word. In your son's name, amen. You should never read a single Bible verse. Never. Uh, That'll get you in all sorts of trouble. Uh, Scripture is not a long string of isolated thoughts. Uh, like a page of disconnected fortune cookie fortunes. That's how a lot of people think about the Bible. Uh, the Bible didn't originally even have chapters and verses. They were, well, there's, there's kind of different versions of the chapter and verse breaks, but the ones that we use today were first put in the Bible in uh, 12, the 1220s, 1227 by a, a bishop. Uh, and so you don't make too much of verses. They're just there for ease of reference. That's why they're put there. So you should always read a paragraph or a couple pages of the scripture to make sure you're properly understanding the context of the verse. I uh, know a story of a woman who was unhappy in her marriage to a non-Christian man, and she wanted guidance from God. Uh, So she turned to scripture and as she uh, thumbed through the pages of the New Testament, she finally found the answer she needed in the King James Version of Ephesians 4.24, which reads, And that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. So she divorced her old man, and she married the new man. That's what she thought that verse meant, or at least that's how she decided to interpret it. It's an extreme example, but I, I see a lot of bad doctrine and a lot of bad decisions coming from failing to read Scripture in its immediate context, which brings me to the very first word of our text, which is therefore. Um, always ask, what is the therefore, therefore? It's a connecting word. Uh, for example, it's cold outside, therefore you should wear a coat, right? So what is Paul connecting? Well, in chapter 1, it ends with Paul returning to his present uh, present misery, excuse me. Uh, Remember, Paul is in prison, probably in Rome, awaiting his preliminary trial before Nero, and uh, is isolated from his main mission work. God, however, is still using it. The gospel is spreading. All his guards are hearing about his testimony. Good stuff is happening. Uh, But it's still real suffering. It's still real conflict for Paul. And in verse 29 and 30, which we looked at last week, he says, for to you, it's been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. It's on that note, the reminder of his present conflict, that he again makes an appeal to them to be united. So he's saying to them, I'm suffering, therefore encourage me 
uh, make my joy complete by maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. You want to help me get through the present uh, struggle? Good. Therefore, be united. Also, note that Paul doesn't uh, command them, but he could. He's an apostle of the Lord, Jesus Christ, and he has that sort of authority. Uh, Recall how he addressed the uh, divisive and proud Corinthians. Uh, He said to them, what do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Paul had to remind the Corinthians of his God-given authority. He could, as a minister of the Lord, come with a rod of discipline. Uh, He didn't want it to be that way, uh, but the Corinthians were a really proud lot. And sometimes the only thing to get the job done is a stiff rebuke and a blunt call for repentance. Pastors need to be allowed to do that. Like, people think the job of a pastor is just to make you feel good every Sunday. But the job of a pastor is to disturb the comfort, comfortable and comfort the disturbed, right? That's their job from God's word. Now, this is a different situation than with the Philippians. As I said at the start of the study of the book, there's a deep affection between Paul and the Philippians. So he instead appeals to them, not on the basis of his authority, but on the basis of their uh, care for each other, their love for one another. And this is a good example for anyone who's a leader or just a parent. A biblical discipline is like a well-stocked tool belt. On it hangs uh, tools like soft answers. That's sometimes right. People say tone doesn't matter. Those people don't know the Bible. The Bible says a soft answer turns away wrath, okay? Uh, So there's soft answers, but there's also sharp rebukes. They have a place. Like Paul says, you foolish Galatians. Oh, well, he only says that to false teachers. No, he was saying it to a bunch of churches in Galatia, a whole county. He was talking to those people. So there's a place for sharp rebukes. There's a place for encouragement. There's a place for fearful warnings. You see that in the book of Hebrews where he's warning them. He's very fearful that they don't know the Lord. There's a place for sarcastic mocking. We'll have to do a sermon one day on all the sarcasm in Scripture, especially the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul loves to use sarcasm. you can't got to be careful today because people are so thin-skinned, and you certainly can't use it on, online because reading comprehension is at an all-time low. But there is a place for it. There really is a place for it. Uh, disturbing metaphors. Scripture is full of some disturbing metaphors that we all are not very comfortable with. Uh, Rhetorical questions, calls to action, and relational appeal, and so forth. Wisdom is knowing when to use which tool. They all have their time and place, some more than others. So here Paul appeals to the Philippians based on their mutual love and faith. In verse 1, he calls to mind the shared realities which form the basis for his call to unity in verse 2. He says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, there is great encouragement in Christ. He is our high priest who loves us. He strengthens us. He exhorts us to the Holy Spirit. And we're not only directly encouraged by the ministry of Christ, but also by those who pursue him in this life. So think of Hebrews. In Hebrews 11, you give this long list of, of really messed up people that though had They had faith in God, and God worked in them. And after that chapter, uh, you get this in Hebrews 12.1. There, he says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witness surrounding us, all those people he talked about in Hebrews 11, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, 
fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So there's an encouragement that we get directly from the example of Jesus, but also other people that are following him. People that have faith, people that trust him in the face of incredible circumstances. Paul goes on and he says, if there's any consolation of love. Now, consolation means an alleviation of misery or distress of mind, refreshment of mind or spirits. And that's what it means to console someone. It means to alleviate, to refresh. So if there's any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the spirit, Fellowship means more than getting a cup of coffee with a Christian. That's what a lot of people think the word means. Uh, but it's more like the movie The Fellowship of the Rings, where you have a, a mission and a group of people are trying to accomplish that mission. It's, it's like a business partnership where two or more go all in on some common goal. That's what it means to be in fellowship with other Christians. If you're getting together with a couple Christians at Arby's from time to time, assuming anyone goes to Arby's still, how did they stay in business during the pandemic? I think they're probably, you know, I was going to say they laundered drug money, but you shouldn't say things like that in sermons. But uh, nonetheless, they're, they're open somehow. And I used to know these guys that would go to Arby's every once in a while for a Bible study. And they're like, oh, that's my fellowship. That's not a fellowship, right? That's time spent together. It has its value. But fellowship is when you have a common mission and you're all in together. Church is very intimate that way. We talked about that uh, in the last couple of weeks. Now, moving on, though, he says, uh, if any affection and compassion, affection means a loving attachment, a sort of settled goodwill towards someone. And compassion, it means a painful sympathy. It's as if you were suffering along with someone. Right? Think of the people that you grow attached to. That's what I love about the church. God brings people together that you would never, ever choose to be friends if it weren't for the church. I always think of our old small group at a church I used to belong to years ago. And uh, Emily and I aren't exactly introverts. We're kind of extroverted people. But our whole small group was full of introverted Dutch people. And we're also not very Dutch. Um, if you ever come over to our house, you'll figure that out pretty quick. Um, but uh, those friends or those members of our small group became dear friends. And when they're going through trouble, I feel it, right? I feel it. I love them. They're my brethren in Christ. Paul's saying, if you have this for me, Paul says, if this describes our relationship, if it describes our mutual faith, if this describes the way you feel towards me, then beginning of verse two, make my joy complete. Give me this gift based on your consoling love, based on our partnership in the work of God, based on your affection and sympathy towards me. And the gift he seeks is the joy that comes from the second half of verse 2. By being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Nothing is more destructive to a church than division and schism. Again, Paul wants to see this church stand the test of time. He's not sure if he's going to get back to them. He thinks he is. But this is his main concern, that they would be united, that they would stand their ground. Attacks from without are bad. But it's attacks from within that are often fatal. Right? We'd rather the bad guys be outside the wall around the fort than on the inside. 
So the warning against, of this, against the sin of disunity in Scripture are many. It comes up over and over again. Uh, for example, listen to how many times some variation of division comes up when Paul lists the deeds of the flesh in Galatians 5. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just I have, excuse me, which I Forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So, enmities, strife, jealousy, disputes, dissension, factions, and envies, all these are manifestations of disunity, and they all are deeds of the flesh, which Paul puts on the same level of idolatry, sorcery, and drunkenness. That's how rotten and terrible the sin of disunity is. It also comes up in 1 Corinthians, probably the most divided church in the New Testament. Paul says, this is chapter 1, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you may be, that you may be made complete in the same mind, in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now, I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Here's some sarcasm, by the way, just as I said earlier. Um, disunity, infighting, uh, in the forming of various parties, tears a church apart. I remember when I was down in the south during my sojourn, the desert of Midian, as it were, um, before I came back to God's country up here in Ohio. Um, I, we were trying to get our elders board to have more elders on it, and the congregation was very concerned that it had a southerner on it. Guess what? We didn't care. We didn't care if there was a southerner on it or not. What we wanted was a man qualified for the office. If he was a southerner, wonderful. If he's not, wonderful. They don't need a special representative on the elders board. The elders represent the entire congregation. And people always try to find their man on the elders board. That always happens. Or elders start to think of themselves as uh, you know, representing some segment of the church. That is the vision. That is a party spirit. It's very destructive. And it, uh, it turns the focus inward and off the glory of the mission of God. Is Christ divided? No. But how we love to divide along uh, us and them lines. And we do so around issues that should be left to freedom and the discretion of individuals. So I can think of people dividing over, uh, we do classical conversations, uh, but they do Charlotte Mason. We do homeschool, but they send their children to private Christian schools. We do unmedicated home births. These are the weird things that come up. Uh, they do hospital births. This one's not in the notes, but I have seen lots of churches divided over the issue of breastfeeding, right? Because whether or not it's on schedule or whenever the baby wants it, and if people start getting really divisive over it, like, if the women get really upset, it becomes a massive issue in the church. And then the husbands were, like, running away. It's like running away from, like, a, 
like a whirlpool and we get sucked into this fight. Like, I don't want to talk about breastfeeding, you know, and then, then everyone's involved. These are the sort of things that divide. Uh, we only eat organic non-factory farm food. They eat GMO corn with GMO corn syrup. Uh, we like the organ or we like acapella. They like the guitar. And the list goes on and on and on. They, they form these parties and churches. This is how people organize themselves in churches by secondary affinities. To some degree, it's natural. Birds of a feather flock together. But the church isn't natural. It's supernatural. It's a spirit-created body. God brings in a diversity of people and unites them in a single congregation. We do not unite around peripheral issues. If unity is there, that's fine. It's okay to agree in those issues. However, we labor towards unity in a single purpose. And that purpose is the advancement of the kingdom of God through the preaching of the gospel. That's where our unity is found. That is how our unity differs from the world. We unite not along lines of preference, but around the truth. Any unity that is founded on anything less will not last. The house that is divided will fall, and so many churches possess only surface-level unity. That's what we found out last year, right? When you got underneath the hood, there was different machinery there. There was different assumptions about the way the world worked. It's very easy for a church to, uh, to get known and build a temporary unity around secondary or peripheral matters. I've told this story uh, before, but I met someone and they said, oh, I know you. You're the pastor of that home birth church. And I said, excuse me, a home birth church. I didn't know there was such a thing. Yeah, you guys are the church that's all about home birth. I'm like, we don't, we don't have, no. what are you talking about, man? Like, we don't have a position on home birth. Well, what had happened in our church is that Emily and I had, our, had Hudson and Athanasius and we had them at, at home. And we had a lot of really young couples in our church that started having kids. And they wanted to know why we chose home birth. So we laid out our case. And some of them got convicted about it. You know, or convinced is probably a better word, not convicted. I don't want to, there wasn't a spiritual issue, but convinced by it. And so they also had a home birth, right? And then they would talk to other people that are kind of in their age group. And then word got out that everyone at this church had home births. We couldn't care less. I don't care less. If you're a normal guy, you probably don't even want to talk about it. I don't blame you. But word got out, right, that that's uh, what our church was about. And we didn't want to be known that way. And so sometimes churches get known for secondary issues by accident, but it was on us. We talked about it a whole lot. We should have thought it through. Churches are really imbalanced when they are founded on secondary issues in which they make primary, and some churches do it on purpose. A friend of mine gave me this very helpful metaphor of churches being like diets. He said, you don't immediately feel the negative effects of a diet lacking in a particular nutrient. It takes time. So it is with ministries that are lacking some element of spiritual life. You don't instantly feel it, but you do feel it eventually. You feel it immediately when it's liberal hogwash. The conservative version will take a little while longer to set in, but again, you'll still feel it. Uh, sermons on biblical sexuality, the evils of abortion, the danger of cultural Marxism are refreshing if all you've had for years is a diet of mere gospel centrality, where everything's reduced down to the most basic 
uh, version of the gospel. That's the point of every single sermon, and it never gets to any application. If that's all you've ever heard, these sort of sermons would be really refreshing to you. That being said, straightforward gospel preaching is strengthening if all you had for years is a diet of practical Christian living sermons, right? Sermons that are like five steps to do that. Sometimes I hear a lot of people that will make fun of five-step sermons. I like five steps. I like steps. I like three steps to do this or whatever. If it comes from Scripture, it's very helpful. But it has to tie back to the gospel somehow. And so it's rare that you find them in the same church. So people bounce from one church to the next in search of that thing that's missing from their diet. Churches know this. It's uh, one of the big motivators behind why they plant single-issue churches. It's a reaction to a real need, but it also perpetuates this cycle. It's terrible in Cincinnati. I've never seen a place like it, right? In Cincinnati, people hop from church to church to church. It's not like that in the other towns I've lived in. I don't know what it is about our town that does that, but church hopping around here is a real problem. It's one thing to visit friends or whatever, but you've got to put down roots somewhere. And so it's our goal uh, to avoid being a reactionary church that's known for a single issue. We're not going to be the no-mass church. I've already said that a million times. There's mass out there. There's, if, you, if that's something you want to do, if that's where you've landed on that issue, wear a mass. We're not going to shame you. We're not going to require it either. I'm not, I'm don't, I don't work for the government. I'm not their enforcement man, okay? Um, but we're going to allow people to use the best uh, discretion. If we're known for the mass, if that's all we're known for, what happens when that issue disappears? If that's our unity, if that's our foundation, what's going to happen? It's going to fall apart. That being said, there will be focuses that might be particular to our church due to the needs of the day. Uh, The goal isn't to plant a church that's some lukewarm, down the middle, above the fray on everything church. Churches that have the most balanced position. I never trust people that are balanced on everything. You know, it's like you're, there's like some Facebook argument. You'll see this. People going back and forth. And there's that one guy that comes in that like this, he's going to be the uniter and he's got the perfect view on everything. If you're going to a church that has a whole, like, I'm imbalanced. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with being imbalanced. I'm okay with focusing on certain things more than others because scripture is too. Scripture is not perfectly balanced. And there's churches that, uh, if, if there's a lot of sexual sin in your community, that should come up a lot. If there's a lot of drunkenness, that should come up a lot. And I remember someone said, Spurgeon was talking about a particular sin too much. And he said, it's easy. I'll stop talking about it when you stop doing it. Right? So we respond to the needs of our day. And that changes from age to age, and it changes from community to community. Not all churches are going to talk about the same thing at all, uh, all at all times. Uh, because that, that idea of being perfectly balanced is just as unbiblical and destructive as being a single-issue church. Now, let me illustrate... A goal, uh, our goal as a church with two pictures, a target and a line of dominoes. First, you can think of a church's doctrine as a series of concentric circles, like an archery target, right? You get the bullseye, and then there's all these circles that go out. So that the uh, bullseye would be the core doctrine from which increasingly derivative doctrines emanate or move out. So the core doctrine is always the doctrine of God, the doctrine of man, and the doctrine of salvation. Those are things you can't get wrong. Those things have to be right. But the more you go out, these things get, you know, less and less important. And uh, there are uh, ditches on two sides of the road. And the way we stay on the road is to properly order primary and subordinate doctrines. We keep the bullseye, um, the bullseye and the rest, uh, you know, just on the target. We care about those things, but we want to keep them in proper 
order, which brings me to the second illustration. You can think of primary doctrines as the initial domino in a long string of dominoes. Once you knock it over, the others begin to fall into place. I can remember at a church plan I was involved in years ago, there's a guy that kept wanting to argue with me about evolution, kept bringing it up. And I said, well, I'd love to talk to you about it. Can I talk to you about the Ten Commandments? And so I walked him through the Ten Commandments, and I walked him through the idea of idolatry, because he was considering becoming a Christian. And so then we would just go over the Ten Commandments every time, and I was showing him his need for the gospel, right? I was like, so do you have any other gods? He's like, I don't think so. I was like, well, is there anything that controls your life so much so that you would choose it over uh, God. Well, yeah, there is. Like, that thing's got to go if you want to be a Christian, man. You can't be a Christian if that's in your life. So we just like walk through those things. And he's not an evolutionist anymore. He's like a six-day guy like I am. But we never talked about it. We never got to it because we knocked over that first domino and things just began to, began to fall. And so you want to get the first things um, first. What a lot of us want to do, if you think of a string of dominoes, we just want to knock these over here. But there's these that haven't fallen in place yet. And that's why you start at the beginning. You at least try to. So what's on the menu for our church? What's our bullseye? What domino do we want to knock over first? What is the center of our unity? Well, what, I, what I've been telling people uh, is that we're Reformed, little c Catholic, and unwoke. <laughs> These words require a little bit of uh, explanation. Uh, so when I say Reformed, what I mean is that we subscribe to the biblical doctrine that was clarified during and after the Reformation period. So a lot of great doctrines got obscured for many years during the medieval time, and then they were clarified through men like Martin Luther and John Calvin and Booster and a long list of guys. And that's the doctrine that we believe in. We've got a list of documents that explain it on our website, and I'd be happy to point you towards some books that would help you. Uh, then there's this word Catholic, right? So I was trying to think of a better word than Catholic. So I look up the word Catholic, and it says it means liberal. And I was like, well, that's not helpful. Um, so we're just going to take words back. They don't own the words. As soon as you let other people define the words, you start losing. Whoever controls the language controls the whole thing. And so when we say Catholic, we don't mean Roman Catholic. That's actually an oxymoron. Because the word Catholic also means universal. You can't be Roman and universal at the same time. Uh, what we mean is that we're not narrow-minded uh, partial or bigoted in the sense that we have a generous orthodoxy at this church and and we, we allow a good deal of doctrinal latitude. There's things that I am willing to die over and I'll fight over, but there's a lot of things where it's like, hey man, that's towards the end of the string of dominoes or that's on the edge of the target and let's, we don't have, we can have a, a good discussion about this or if we're like, you know, it's great, I love a good argument if it's with someone that knows that it's just like play fighting you know, like some guys, when I grew up, we used to like slap box, and then someone would slap someone too hard, and then the fist would close, and you start really hitting each other. As long as you're like, hey, we're just, we're like flexing, we're trying to think through this together. That's fine. Um, but there's certain things that we're not going to divide over. You'll hear my doctrine. You'll hear my eschatology, or my view of the end times. You'll hear my view of the sacraments, or baptism. Those things will come up. Uh, but we have a lot of freedom here, and we do that on purpose, because we think... Uh, we're in a day where Christians are going to get more and more persecuted, and we've got to be pretty choosy on what we're going to fight over. But we actually have to fight over those things. 
It's funny the ones that always talk about having a generous orthodoxy, they won't stand for anything. So if you're saying like, hey, those things are secondary, that means the primary things, yeah, this is bare knuckle boxing. We're not going to move on this at all. And I'm always against them finding something in the negative. I've spent enough time in corporate America where you're always trying to, how can I put this in positive terms? Um, but unwoke is another thing that defines our ministry. And that's because there's this idea of being woke that's going around. And it just means that, like, you've seen the truth of liberalism. You've seen the truth of radical egalitarianism and critical race theory that all oh, white people are racist. That's what we found out. You know, I'm like, I'm not white. What are you talking about? I'm from Native Americans and Jews. And like, well, you look white, so you have white privilege. Like, well, didn't feel that way growing up. But it doesn't matter. You're a white man. You're a racist. I saw the Babylon Bee had a chart. It says, is this racist? And then it says, it exists. And then it says, it's racist. (laughs) That is the time we live in. The problem isn't white supremacy. It's woke supremacy. That's what we're struggling with in America right now. So the things that make us tick here, the things that we unite around is reformed doctrine and a Catholic spirit, and we're standing against uh, the wokeness, those things that are uh, ripping the church apart right now. We're not going to cave into, uh, we're not going to cave into that stuff. So when Paul says, have the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, he's urging them to pursue a deep, abiding, internal unity. May God uh, give that to us. Paul wants them to dwell in peaceful harmony for the sake of each other and the work of the kingdom. Uh, There's a good degree of humility already in the church of Philippians, but division is rearing its ugly head, as we will see. We'll see the big threat in this church. There's Judaizers on the outside, but the threat inside the church are two women arguing. And I got a whole sermon for you on how two women gossiping and slandering and arguing can destroy a whole church more than any theological argument you ever imagine. I've seen it happen with my own eyes. But that's not today. Uh, but that's showing. He sees clouds on the horizon. And Paul wants them to maintain and advance the unity uh, in their church. And that will require humility. In verse uh, 3 and 4, he says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. We don't understand humility these days. We, we got it all wrong. And there's two particular mistakes I want, uh, I want to address. First, humility is not a posture. It isn't a tone. I've seen this at so many conferences where guys, how's, how's it going, brother? It's like this real low voice, like they're an NPR radio host. You ever listen to NPR? And I'm like, what's with that? Who talks that way? Who, are you, are you struggling with the Lord right now? Like, I'm struggling with this, with this conversation. This is really unnatural. Um, what's going on? Oh, you want me to know you're humble. I see. You have the humility tone. Oh, and your head's down. Your hands are in your pockets. You're making yourself little. I see. You're a humble man. I get it. I get it. Right? Humility, though, is a right understanding of who you are and your place in this world. It isn't a higher or lower view of oneself. It's a right view. Uh, There are those that take on a posture to seem humble, but it's always a false humility. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, he captured it well. He said, I suppose I could have spent time making myself likable to the West. This is a guy that survived communism over in Russia. The only problem is that I would have to drop my way of life and my work. I fought it at the highest pitch of expression. 
The people in the West were not accustomed to this tone of voice. In the West, one must have a balanced, calm, soft voice. One ought to make sure to doubt oneself, to suggest that one may, of course, be completely wrong. Right? And this is why I always tell people that the, uh, the road to hell is paved with adverbs. Right? Listen to the L-Y words. If I ask my sons, is, is your room clean? Well, it's mostly clean. So it's not clean. That's what that means, okay? And so um, listen to churches that use lots of adverbs in their belief statements. And there's sometimes you just got to say something. It's blunt. It's unnuanced. And that's what Solzhenitsyn did, and that's why he made ground. But we're not allowed to do that nowadays because we always have to make room for no one to get offended and for everyone to agree. Which gets me to my second point. Humility is not a lack of certainty in truth. And G.K. Chesterton, in his book, Orthodoxy, writes, What we suffer from today is humility in the wrong place. Modesty has moved from the organ of ambition. Modesty has settled upon the organ of um, conviction, where it was never meant to be. A man was meant to be doubtful about himself, but undoubting about the truth. This has been exactly reversed. Nowadays, the part of a man that a man does assert is exactly the part he ought not assert himself. The part he doubts is exactly the part that he ought not doubt. Look, it's good to doubt your own motivations. At least check them, question them. But not the instruction of Scripture. That's not humility. It's the proud man who trusts his own doubts over the word of God. A lot of times we'll be accused of being arrogant for not moving on the doctrine of Scripture, so be it. It's those that question God that are the arrogant ones, right? It's humility to submit to the Lord and know your place in this world. God's word is not below you. It's above you. God's word scrutinizes you. You don't scrutinize it. It's true, all of it, even the parts that you struggle with. And there are parts that are hard. I get that. But I won't apologize for them. You're wrong. It's right. That's the story. We can have the conversation, though, and we can work through these things. People always are trying to make us comfortable with doubting God's word and never making people uh, uh, comfortable, or excuse me, comfortable doubting themselves. And that's what I want to see more in my life and more in the life of other people, where I could be wrong, but the Bible can't be wrong. So then what is humility? Humility of mind is having rights but happily laying them down in the service of others. For this mind to be accomplished, you must not think highly of yourself. You've got to put aside selfishness and empty conceit. The word for selfishness here means a courting distinction, a desire to put oneself forward. It's that sort of attitude when you're in a conversation with somebody and you're kind of thinking like, how can I make this about me, right? That's selfishness. Maybe you know, uh, I think I told this story, but I had a friend that, that recovered from cancer. And we knew that every time he had a conversation with someone, his cancer is going to come up. And so I just watched and say, how will he bring his cancer up to New York? You know? And I remember this girl came in. She had alopecia over her whole body. So she, was, uh, she had no hair. She was bald. And he said, oh, so you're a cancer survivor. And she's like, no, I have alop- alopecia. <laughs> I was like, ha! Um, it's the attitude that's hungry for applause and praise that says, look at me. And worse that selfishness has no, 
No give, no flex. Every preference becomes a principle. Every particular becomes a principle. Selfish ambition seeks only to advance its cause, and then, of course, it will be labeled, it will label its cause an imperative of Scripture. That's what you'll find. And the second thing he says to watch out for that we have to put aside is empty conceit, which is also translated as vainglory in the King James Version. Calvin says vainglory tickles men's minds so that everyone is delighted with his own inventions, right? So conceited people, vain people, are the enemies of unity because they make their ideas and preference the center of the community, not Christ. They think all their ideas are genius. And when you're working on something, when you're collaborating together, you throw, when you brainstorm, you throw all your ideas out there, and many of your ideas are stupid. They're dumb ideas. But that's part of the process, Right? You're just throwing them out there. You're working out. This is how you work on a team. But uh, vain people think all their ideas are gold, right? But they're not. And if that's you, if, if someone says that's not a good idea and you get really offended, then you have some vanity you need to work on. These are people unable to see past their own interests to care for others. Therefore, they are the source of unending division. But those who have beheld the perfection of Jesus Christ even if they are superior to others in some or many ways. So some of us are more mature or superior in others in some areas of our life. Well, how do you think of others more highly if that's the situation? Well, it's because you're not comparing yourself to them. You're comparing yourself to Jesus Christ, right? Those people who compare themselves to Jesus Christ aren't self-consumed and self-amazed. How could they be? He's the perfect man. He's never sinned, and he honored God perfectly in every way. You might be proud of yourself when you compare yourself to others. I think of like, you know, if you go to uh, you go to a gym, and there's a bunch of like really, really obese people, and you've lost a little weight, and you're like, hey, I'm looking pretty good. And then you go to like some crazy gym rat, steroid-using gym, and you look at those people, you're like, man, I am in terrible shape, right? Well, Jesus is the perfect man, perfect in every way, and it humbles you. It keeps you very humble, so you can think of others besides yourself. Blaise Pascal said it well. What amazes me most is that everyone isn't amazed at their weaknesses, There is reason Paul is about to call to mind the example of Christ in verses 5 through 11. We'll get to it next week. He does it both to humble and inspire us. The same goal is captured in 1 John 3, 16. We uh, know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Jesus is the God-man, never sinned, and he laid his life down for us, for us. You know yourself. You know your reality. Jesus did that for us. Can't you lay your life down for your brethren? You ought to if you believe the gospel. That's the key to unity. That's what he's calling them to. That's how he's going to protect the Philippians from the attacks that are coming from without and from within. By humbling them and keeping their eyes on Christ. Now, may God grant us this unity by making us more like his son. So let's pray.